First Timothy chapter three. Um, last week we spent some time on two points that elders are the leadership of Christ's church. And the New Testament uses three terms that describe the leadership of the church, local church. And they are overseers, also translated uh, bishop. Here you can see that even in our text this morning, chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Timothy. They are elder, which is used uh, more times than any other word. And then uh, one time used as a title, uh, pastor or pastor teacher in Ephesians 4. And as I showed you in several passages where even these terms are, many of these terms are used in the same passage, they are uh, terms for the same office, they just describe different functions of that same office, what we have typically called pastor. Um, And so we uh, made the point that elders are the leadership of the church. But secondly, we looked at something that somehow has been departed from in recent uh, centuries and decades for the most part. Uh, And I'm saying that in my limited perspective as an American here in my experience. But we looked at the truth that elders share the leadership of the church. Elders are the leadership of the church rather than what has traditionally been an elder being the leadership of the church. And there is far more evidence in my understanding of scripture of a, uh, that the leadership is to be shared among multiple elders than a single elder over a church. I think you can make a small case for a single elder over a church, but I think that vast majority of the material in the New Testament argues for uh, multiple elders in a church as they are raised up. And that is a, a theme, a common thing, shared leadership, uh, and more in the Bible than we think. Uh, there were elders of Israel there. there. Jesus chose 12 apostles, not one to lead the church, although there are certainly of that group people who are more prominent in their leadership, such as Peter. And early in their training, he sends them out together as a team. Uh, even the elders in heaven mentioned uh, in Revelation are plural. And then the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit uh, are equal, aren't they? They are equal. and All three of members of the Trinity are, are, are fully God, uh, but yet uh, there are roles that they play there. We walked through some of the New Testament in that and, and, uh, and looked at the truth that I believe is, is clear in the New Testament that elders share the leadership of Christ's church. Well, this morning, I'd like to look in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 through 7 and see that um, uh, elders and body, they characterize, and I'm using that word um, on purpose, they characterize the leadership of the church. We're going to look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 of what an elder, or here he's described as a bishop, an overseer, it's the same office, uh, needs to be. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Now, as we're looking at this passage here, I want you to be aware of the fact um, how different, sadly, how different these qualifications are in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 are for modern expectations and qualifications for a pastor. Uh, though education in the word is important, and this is one of the things that is implied in these character traits, a master of divinity degree or a Bible college degree 
And having this or that skill or certification is not listed in these qualifications. Certainly, that can be helpful, but it is not required, contrary to some of our mainline denominational thinking. It is character and the passage here in the text that receives the weight of analysis. Let's start off here with verse 1. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, and in your mind I just want you to think overseer there. Sometimes that word bishop we think of uh, uh, different uh, um, baggage that goes along with that. from the Anglican Church or the Roman Catholic Church, but the idea there, that word means overseer. He desireth a good work. Now, word true is the idea of being reliable and faithful. This is a reliable saying. What is the reliable saying? And there's some debate about whether Paul's referring back to the previous. You know, people divided up the chapters. Paul didn't divide up the chapters and verses. Some guy came along and decided to do that. Um, So there's some debate about whether he's referring to what's above there in chapter 2, or what he's referring to as the person divided up the chapters here, what follows here, if a man desire the office of a bishop. What is the true saying? Well, I do believe that he divided this correctly. Uh, Stephen Langton, who in 1200 or so divided up the chapters and verses in our scripture. That the true saying is, if a man desire the office of bishop, he desireth a good work. I think that's correct. Uh, Paul says this is a reliable saying. And what is the reliable saying? If a man desires, or the idea there is he has aspirations for, he aspires, the office of an overseer, he's desiring a good work. Paul assumes that in Timothy's congregation in Ephesus, that there will be men who, as they saw the eldership and the elders in Ephesus, they may be looking into that uh, uh, office. And by the way, this also, this passage, if you really think about it, also implies a plurality of elders or, or more than one elder sharing leadership in the church because Timothy was already an elder in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus had more than one elder that we saw in Acts 20. And so Paul's saying there will be others who wanted to join the eldership, but they need to be pursuing and having uh, 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 these qualifications here. So if a man has the aspirations of the offices of a bishop, he desireth a good work. That word, that second word desire, is not the same as the first word desire. The first word desire is aspire, have aspirations. The second word desire um, uh, is the idea here of, of, um, uh, of what we would normally use the word desire for. He is, he, he, uh, he, he's desiring something good. There's a... There's a, there's a um, a drive for that. So what does Paul say here? Well, he says, if a man literally, he says, stretch oneself out for this. He, that word desire, the first word desire there in verse 1, is the, is the idea of, of, of reaching out one's hand. Then Paul says, he is setting his heart on a good work. A good work. The idea of work in this passage here is the idea of a task, a noble task. So the work of the eldership is a good task. It is a noble task. And because it is a noble task, then Paul says, in following, there must be noble men. Noble men. Noble task, noble men. 
So because of the nature of the task, there are some qualifications to be faithful overall. Of. It's, Paul says it's not enough for desire. There's more to it than that. There's more to it. Just because a person says, uh, I feel called by God to be a pastor. Well, that's nice. There's more to it than this. And so here's what the qualifications are. Verse 2. A bishop or an overseer then must be blameless. Blameless. It's a word that means above reproach. It does not mean that the man is perfect. Because we all, there would never be an elder, right? We all fall short of that. But it does mean that there is no great blot on life. Particularly, as I understand it, since he has come to Christ and has been a new creature. There is no great blot on his life that others, especially unbelievers, could point to. Why do I say, since he's been a new creature? Well, I hope you understand that the person writing this was a person who, before Christ, was not a nice guy. In fact, he's a murderer. And God's grace rescued his heart. So if this idea of blameless uh, did not describe Paul, then Paul would not have the elevated position of an apostle. So I believe this is referring to after their conversion. They come to Christ. They've been given a new heart. The old man is dead. The new is alive. And so he needs to be above reproach. The idea here means to be free from any offensive or disgraceful blight of character or conduct, such as what follows here. It means, uh, according to Alexander Strzok, it means to be irreproachable. In other words, a critic could not discredit his character. Now, he might be able to make some things up. But here's what it means. As one country preacher said, it means that when you throw mud on him, it doesn't stick. All right? Um, This is like the umbrella, the overarching character quality above reproach. Uh, I was aware of, recently found out about uh, an an area uh, church here, I say area, I don't know, in Maine, um, where the pastor had had an affair with his secretary, had divorced his wife and married the secretary, and he has since repented and now he's the pastor of such and such a church now. The problem with that is, although God's grace will cover any sin and blot out our record, the problem is that the qualification here in 1 Timothy 3 says a man must be blameless. Alright? And so that man would not be qualified, according to this passage here, this is the idea of reputation, isn't it? It's not that God has covered your sin, though He has. It's the idea of reputation. And, uh, and so that's why this is important, so that the world cannot sling mud at us and have it stick and discredit the gospel of God. The gospel is to be adorned. And so above reproach is very important. It's, it's, it's the umbrella that all these other qualifications are going to fit under. And that's very important to understand because that frames each of these qualifications that follow. Next one says, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. And in keeping with that idea of blameless, it means above reproach in his marital and sexual life. That word there that's translated the husband of one wife literally means a one woman man. A one woman man. 
Now, there are different interpretations of what this means over the years, and here they are. That could mean that an elder must be married. He needs to be the husband of one wife. That could mean that an elder must not be a polygamist, which you say, well, that's not very relevant for our situation here. Well, some people say that was in theirs. Uh, That could mean, thirdly, that elders may marry only once, no matter what. But I take the general understanding that elders must be maritally and sexually above reproach. Why could it not mean that an elder must be married? Well, Paul's married. He says so in 1 Corinthians 7. So that would contradict uh, 1 Corinthians 7 and Paul himself. He does so. So I believe it is it is a, 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 a possible for a single person to be an elder for sure. Uh, he does not say an elder must be a man who has a wife. By the way, he doesn't say that, but rather a one woman man. Just as verse four later on does not say an elder must have children. He says if he has children, they need the idea there is he has children. They need to be uh, his household needs to be ruled well. Uh, I do not believe as. A, has kind of been a more popular uh, interpretation that Paul is talking about polygamy here. Uh, It is certainly a possibility. I know some good scholars who take that position. But it seems as you look historically uh, to the Jews as well as the Romans in that culture that surprisingly they had a lot of vices, but polygamy was not one of them uh, there. It does not seem to be a problem that Paul was addressing. The uh, third position uh, is that remarriage is not allowed. He can only be a husband of one wife. If you're consistent with that, that means that someone who is a, uh, a widower then could not remarry. And so, so here's, here's where I, I differ with that interpretation, that remarriage is not allowed. That means that uh, a man, that what they're saying is a man divorced and remarried is not allowed uh, to be, and to be consistent, a widower who remarried would not qualify. And I hope that we see from Paul's epistles that certainly remarriage after the death of a spouse is, is, is acceptable. In fact, uh, Paul tells the widows in chapter 5, he, used, he talks about a one-man woman, and he talks about widows there, and, and uh, the younger widows he encourages to remarry. So that, that could be the case there, certainly for widows or uh, for a widower. Most would agree on that. But others interpret this phrase to mean that men who have remarried after divorce cannot be elders. Um, again, the overarching idea here is above reproach. Above reproach. And you can be a person who is above reproach, whose wife has left you in adultery, or whose wife has abandoned you, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 7. And it seems to me in 1 Corinthians 7, there is freedom to remarry granted to the innocent party there when a marriage has been terminated as a result of uh, of sexual uh, unfaithfulness, as I believe Matthew 19.9 should be understood. Or when an unbelieving spouse has abandoned a believing spouse, 1 Corinthians 7.15. Uh, It does not seem to be restricted, so they couldn't apply to a potential officer here. A person is beyond beyond reproach. What their spouse did to them is one thing. And by the way, in Jewish and Greek and Roman culture, it was relatively easy for a man to divorce his wife. So if you take the position here that this means that a man could have never been divorced, uh, then you are opening yourself up to endless questions as well. For example... 
When did the divorce happen? Uh, before or after conversion? Uh, why did the divorce happen? Uh, does it make a difference <clears throat> um, here? And so I, I think that the position that Paul is talking about, excluding those who have been remarried, seems not to have seems not to hold water for a few reasons. In, in my opinion, um, I think Paul is making the point that if a that this person should serve as an example to us in faithfully doing their part in marriage. In the area of family marriage. Now hear very clearly. If Paul wanted to be absolutely clear on whether an elder should serve who has been divorced, he could have very easily and simply said he must not be divorced. But he does not. He says he must be above reproach, which needs to be framed here in order to understand the husband of one wife. In other words, I think we could think about it like this. Is there mud that could be slung on this man because of his lack of character, his lack of character, in the arena of marriage as a believer? Paul's overall point here is this. A man needs to be faithful to his wife as you have observed his life, Timothy, and the congregation. Is there a pattern of faithfulness in his marriage? I believe that Paul is taking the commandment of Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt not commit adultery, and showing how that applies here in 1 Timothy 3. He's asking the, uh, those uh, examining this, this individual if adultery is the issue in his life. And by the way, we understand Jesus' words in Matthew that says adultery can take place without the very act. So he's talking here about one who has kept the commandment of God as a new creation and not commit adultery, but is faithful to his life. We can put it this way very simply. Is he single-minded in his devotion to his wife if he is married? You say, well, how does that apply to single people? Single people need to be devoted pure in purity. In purity. You might have a wife and therefore worry about being faithful to her, but you need to be faithful to God's demands and, and expectations for your life as a single person. Single-minded in their devotion to Christ and, his pure, and their purity. The next character trait says... Uh, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given hospitality, apt to teach there. It's idea of temperance here. Temperance. Mental sobriety. Self-control. A balanced judgment. Not a distorted judgment. Uh, stable and clear-headed. Having a high... Not IQ. Having a high EQ. An emotional quotient. There's lots of people who have IQs out of the roof, right? But can't deal with people, right? He's talking about having a high emotional quotient here. Motions in order. And there's the idea here, uh, a sober, uh, a prudence, the idea of prudence, uh, similar to temperate, it's discretion and common sense, it's wisdom and handling people and problems here. Of good behavior. That's the idea of being orderly, well-behaved, virtuous. Someone that others would follow for the right reasons. Of good behavior. 
And then hospitable. Hospitable. Given to hospitality. This man would need to love people, be concerned about them, minister to people's needs, uh, open home and an open heart, a loving sacrificial spirit, because a lack of hospitality would be someone who is selfish, lifeless, uh, loveless. And this man needs to be an example of Christian care and love. Now, all these are things, by the way, that are commanded in Scripture of all of us. These are all commanded in Scripture to all of us. And Mark Dever says the most extraordinary thing about these qualifications is that they're not extraordinary at all. They're very ordinary. They're expected of all of us. But there is one here um, uh, that the next one in verse 2, the last phrase, apt to teach, that is a skill that needs to be true of this person. Not all of us are able to teach in this expectations here of an elder. All right? And able to teach means, as Paul's told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, to feed the flock. It's the idea of being ready to teach. They know Scripture. They know how it works together. Uh, they don't take a verse, one verse out of context. They know how it all fits together. They are uh, able to c- communicate. They are able to instruct others from the Bible. If you turn over with me to Titus chapter 1 and verse 9, it's interesting how Paul um, puts phrases this idea of being apt to teach. Titus 1 verse 9 Paul gives the description of the elders that Titus is to appoint in Crete. And in Titus 1 verse 9 says this. Holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So that kind of helps us understand perhaps a little bit more what Paul's saying when he says able to teach. Able to teach. Now, here's what it, here's what it, it, it doesn't say. And, it, and, and um, sometimes people think able to teach, they think of what I'm doing right now. All right? Uh, preaching publicly or teaching publicly or limited to Sundays or when the entire congregation is gathered. And Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't say able to teach when the whole church is gathered here. He says able to teach. That could mean that they do better uh, uh, teaching in small groups. Paul never says that all elders need to be able to preach publicly. Uh, He gives room to one who can explain the word privately, I believe. Not all elders have the gift for teaching in the public way that we normally think of. But they do need to have a sound and mature understanding of the flow of Scripture and be able to explain to others. And here's a little side note here. Sometimes we mix the idea of someone who is an exhorter with someone who is a teacher. An exhorter is somebody who says, this is what the, this is what the Bible says, we need to do it, right? Encourage us to do it. Um, uh, there is a difference, though, between exhortation and teaching. I think there, there is overlap there. But teaching is making plain and clear the Word of God so that we can understand it. An exhorter kind of assumes we understand and says, here's what we need to do, right? And there is a difference uh, between uh, exhortation in many ways and, and teaching. They need to have a sound and mature understanding of the flow of Scripture and be able to explain it to others. And Paul says, 
not given to wine. The idea is not addicted to wine. It's literally the idea, and it gives us the word picture, of one who sits long at his wine. He sits long at his wine. Or he's enslaved by wine. It means above reproach in his use of substances. He must be in a position of trust and authority. Uh, so so there is a prohi- uh, prohibition of abuse of anything in principle that would damage his testimony and work. And it's a good thing that he does not say, not addicted to coffee, right? Uh, look next. <clears throat> he says, no striker. No striker. That is a very literal translation there from the Greek. Uh, and it means he's, he's not pugnations. It means, in other words, he's not a fighter. He's not a guy who flies off the handle. He assaults others. Not a striker. It's the idea, if you're not a striker, you're gentle. <clears throat> and we really don't have a word that captures, an English word that captures the meaning of the, of the idea of gentle in, in Greek. But it, 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 when you put a bunch of words together, it kind of gives us a picture. It's the idea of being forbearing, uh, kind, gracious, not retaliatory. You know, when he's stepped on, he doesn't strike back. Um, uh, doesn't insist on their own opinions. Uh, allows room for debate in debatable areas. Not a striker. Not a striker. <clears throat> he says later on, not a brawler. Not a brawler. Not uncontentious. Or someone who is uncontentious. He's a peacemaker. He's not a quarreler. He's not a quarreler. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25, Paul says this about Timothy. He says, The servant of the Lord must not strive or fight, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach patience and meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. He's a peacemaker. He's one who stirs up strife unnecessarily. Understand this, you stand for truth. You will stir up some people. Um, but he isn't, he's a peacemaker. <clears throat> Next he says, uh, and I'm skipped ahead a, a little bit because they're similar there with gentleness and brawler. Patient, that's the idea of gentle. They're not a brawler. Um, but going back in verse 3 here, not greedy of filthy lucre. That means simply he's not in it for the money. Which in Titus chapter 1 is in contrast to the false teachers. They're in it for the money. Also in 1 Timothy 6.5, Titus 1.11. Free from the love of money. Doesn't drive him. Then in verse 4. <clears throat> One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And this shows us that everybody's home, fathers, husbands here, everybody's home is like a little church. And fathers, husbands, you're the pastor of that little home here. All right? Um, he's to be a responsible father, husband, and a family manager. He doesn't just provide financially, but he provides emotionally and spiritually as he's able to. His home is a little church. It is the laboratory of ministry. What is true in Ephesians 5.22 through chapter 6, verse 4, is true of his home as much as he... Uh, can control it through the power of God. His children, 
are uh, ruled in subjection with all gravity. And he says in verse 6, not a novice, not a novice, not a new convert, but being lifted up with pride, he fallen into the condemnation of the devil. It's the idea of no matter how zealous he is, he needs to have a pattern in his life of maturity. Um, the, uh, in shepherding, the temptation of pride would be too great for someone who is a novice. Paul wants deep roots. And it's very interesting that this is not listed in Titus's qualifications, perhaps because uh, the work there was newer and fresher. But here in Timothy it is. <clears throat> and then he says, uh, verse 7, Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. He needs to have a good reputation among the outside world, among the believers. They should be able to render a good verdict, perhaps excessive debt to somebody, or things that they could have controlled would keep them from having a good reputation among unbelievers. Treating others poorly, maybe in business transactions or whatever. Lacking integrity. There should not be a time that non-Christians could say, uh, he acts that way and he's a church elder? Because apparently, apparently in verse 7, the devil can use that for worse things. So what I want to uh, ask you this morning is, have you seen these men? Have you seen these men? Are there men who fit these qualifications and are even doing some elder work even now without the title recognition quietly? What I'd like to do is have a couple of our ushers come and I have that, a sheet by that very title. <clears throat> South Hope Community Church, have you seen these men? So I have a couple of our ushers here this morning. Uh, pass this out. <clears throat> I've taken some uh, material here, certainly it's out of scripture here, but um, uh, Bill Hybels has written on on leadership, and um, the very first things he talks about here is is what we just went through, character, character, qualifications and character, and 1 Timothy 3 and and Titus 1. I want you to be thinking about these things here. I want this to be going through your hopper. You as a congregation are very are, are a very important part of identifying men who are this way. And by the way, I assumed it. I did not say it explicitly, but if you have questions about it, I can answer them later. Notice it is men here as elders. Not that women are inferior. We have different roles we fill here. And so it is expected that uh, he does not say the, the, the wife of one husband, right? Uh, he says the husband of one wife. All these things are expected to be uh, men. If you have more questions about that, I could answer them later. But I figure with this crowd, that's not, um, for the most part, uh, something we're wondering about. Character. Character. Divided here into four C's. Character that we just went through. The second C is competence. Competence. Are they competent to do the job? To share in the job? Uh, Are they gifted in a certain way? We showed one of the things there was able to teach. Alright? We'll explain the word of God. But here's one that sometimes is left out. 
And it is chemistry. Chemistry. I want you to think, if perhaps there's an individual that has come to mind, does that person work well with other people? Alright? Can they fit in a team? Um, or are they like a bull in a china shop? Uh, or are they, you know, just kind of, st- uh, their people skills are, are, are lacking here? Uh, there needs to be uh, chemistry. Someone has said this and it's very true. It is better to have uh, no elders than to have the wrong one. So chemistry. I know some folks uh, in other places I've been who, who many things were true of their lives in 1 Timothy 3, but they would not have served well as an elder. And by that I meant, I mean, uh, their people skills were like on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, you know, a 1. Um, they would mean well, but it, it ended up, they would end up creating more division than, than, than before. So I want you to consider chemistry. And fourth C here, courage. Courage. No matter what their personality, are they going to be able to be courageous? Um, ministry is messy. Ministry is not easy. Will they be courageous and stick with the truth and do that in love? What I ask you to do here is not, not fill this out right now, but I want you to be thinking here. And in the coming weeks, uh, as you pray and you think about this, is there someone that you've seen an overall pattern of these qualities? Not perfect in all of these, but this is a person who, as I put, should be in a discussion. Should be in a discussion of a possible down-the-road future selection process of an elder of South Oak Community Church. And if you have someone that you're thinking of, I just want you to put their name on there, uh, um, or names that you think of. Tear off the bottom of that. Don't sign your own name. This is anonymous um, here. Yeah, and by that I mean don't put your name as someone who's recommending this person. I'm also assuming you're not recommending yourself um, there. Um, uh, although you should be thinking about these things for yourself. Um, but, uh, but, but hand that to me or, or put it in a bo- my box there or I'll have a basket out on the foyer table and fold it in half. And, and I want you to be thinking this way. Have you seen these men? Have you seen these men? We need God's guidance. I asked you last week to uh, consider prayer and, uh, and even fasting as God reveals to us uh, uh, members who could serve on an eldership team here. You see, while it was Paul who appointed the elders, and while I believe it's elders who appoint other elders, it is the congregation together and the church as a whole that recognizes them and their leadership. So you play a very important part in this as well.